Welcome to Naomi's Table, a Bible study podcast for women. I'm your host, Amy Spreeman. Check out all the Bible studies at Naomi'sTable.com. Now here's teacher Beth Seifert with today's lesson in 2 Corinthians. So pull up a chair, open your Bibles, and let's begin. Welcome back to our study in the book of 2 Corinthians, ladies. Today we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 16. I've titled this lesson, Day 12, Doing Life in the Body of Christ. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice, because I have complete confidence in you. Well, Paul now returns to defending himself to the believers in Corinth. He is, he tells them, blameless in wronging them. He didn't wrong them. There was no wrong given by him to them. His record truly stands blameless. There was no hint of corruption or impropriety of any sort, and there's no basis for any charge against him. He didn't sin against them or take advantage of them, and in light of this, Paul pleads with them to make room in their hearts for him. He shouldn't have to plead this way, yet he does. 
and all the wrongs they have been told have been committed against them by Paul, have altered their affection and acceptance of him, and Paul urges them to remember what is actually true and not be swayed by the false teachers. Paul did correct them, and they were sorrowful for that necessary correction, but Paul correcting them wasn't wronging them. And notice how he does this too. He doesn't condemn or heap extra judgment on them for believing the false teachers and rejecting him and his teaching, but he reminds them of his love for them and his willingness to forgive them. These people are truly precious to him, which is why he warns them at all. They are in his heart. He is acting boldly in this letter, speaking clearly to them, but also with a tenderness and a love for them. Paul also takes pride in them in the repentance they did show when they received his first letter, and he has been comforted by that repentance, knowing that it is evidence of their salvation. He is full of joy for the work God is doing in these people, even in the midst of the affliction he suffers, seeing that his words are not in vain and they are not hopeless. He still holds hope that God will continue to sanctify these people, even as he is the messenger of the truth that they don't really want to hear. They're seeing the truth of Paul's messages to them, and their repentance shows that they do value Paul and they do rely on him. Even more reason for them to not be dismissing him, his teaching, and his influence based on these false teachers' accusations. That's the thing that astounds me. The fruit of Paul's ministry is obvious. The fruit in his life, in his work, in the lives changed by the message of the gospel— they're all evidence of Paul's authority and apostleship. Yet all it seems to take is an accusation by the false teachers, a hint attacking Paul's motives, and these people are so quick to abandon Paul. But what's the fruit of the false teachers? Greed, pride, boasting, division. Honestly, we can so easily be led astray today in the same way, impugning the character of a truly godly person based on an accusation made by someone who shows no fruit of the gospel in their lives. Paul then seems to segue here, but keep in mind this was a letter. If you've never written an actual handwritten letter before, well, this is often how it goes. You start to talk about one subject, which leads your brain to another subject, and then you circle back to the original thought that you were having and continue on from there. So here in verse 5, it almost seems that Paul is picking up the narrative that he split off from back in chapter 2, verse 13. Paul explains to them that even when they were suffering in Macedonia, even when their external circumstances were terrible and their anxiousness and fear was pervasive, Paul received comfort from Titus when he heard his report about how Paul's message to Corinth had been received. Paul basically says he's sorry but not sorry that the message grieved them. A loving pastor will sometimes have to cause sorrow to those he cares for if they're falling into sin, and that's what Paul did here. He's sorry that it was necessary for them to be grieved, but he's also thankful that they were grieved because that grief led to their repentance and reconciliation with God. Thus, the grief that they felt was totally worth it in the long run as that grief was godly grief leading to salvation without regret. It's interesting to look at that for a moment. Godly grief will result in repentance that leads to salvation without regret. One who is truly saved will not regret that God showed them their sin so that they would recognize it for what it was and be saved. But worldly grief will lead only to death. And there is this implication that if godly grief has no regret, 
worldly grief will be regret-filled. Where there is no heart change, where the sorrow is only sorrow that pushes you to think you have to try harder or do better, there is no true rescue or salvation. There is no hope offered there. That sorrow only leads to more self-recrimination, more guilt, more regret of what you could have done better. When we are sorrow-filled because our sin is against God ultimately, the very one who created us and recreated us through Christ, our sorrow is pointed back to the solution. Repentance and faith and trusting in Christ and His Spirit to enable us to go forward without sin. It's only with His Spirit that we are able to truly fight and win against our sin. Think about Peter's sorrow when he denied Christ. What did that end up leading Peter to? To be brought back in to Christ, to see his sin for what it was, to hate his sin even more, and to draw near to Christ. But what about Judas? Judas was sorrowful after he had handed Jesus over to the rulers to be crucified. He even tried to give the money back. But what did Judas's sorrow lead to? Judas's sorrow didn't draw him closer to Christ. It drove him further away from him, ending in despair. These believers, in their regret and godly sorrow, are earnestly desiring to clear themselves of their sin, to be reconciled back to God, to repent and glorify and honor God. This is part of the sanctification of every believer, the continued call to repentance and faith as we walk in this life, and it's not about getting re-saved. Our justification before God is a one-time event. Our sanctification is progressive, and we should see evidence of that in true believers. Thus, Paul wrote to them for their benefit in this. His message was not for the benefit of the leader of the opposition against Paul. The benefit of the letter was for the people listening to him, to help them think clearly so that they might see clearly their error and sin, and so that they might repent. And that goal was accomplished and Paul was comforted. But Paul doesn't rejoice only for that, but also for their care and welcome of Titus. Think about the role Titus had to play. He was charged with this message and with bringing back to Paul the response from the people. There was a real possibility that if those people had not repented, that they could have taken out the rebellion on Titus. But that's not what happened. Praise the Lord. They welcomed Titus. They refreshed him. It wasn't a pitched battle between Titus and the people. Paul had told Titus of these people in both positive and negative terms. Titus was well prepared for his visit, and Paul's boasting in their hospitality and their concern for the truth of God was proved right. Thus, Titus also includes his love for these people, as he not only benefited from their practical care of him, but he also witnessed their true repentance. Walking with the believer through sin and repentance is very intimate, and it does bond you. When you see someone truly broken over their sin and they respond with rightly changed affection and true repentance and change, it's amazing. Now just a little side note, reminder here. The letter or message that Titus brought to Corinth, scholars don't think that was the letter that we have that we call 1 Corinthians. That was the lost letter. So it appears that Paul wrote to them about their failure to defend him and the gospel to these false teachers. So where does all of this leave us today? Well, first of all, this reminds me that just because we are Christians doesn't mean our interactions with each other will be smooth and easy. 
we still sin, and we sin against each other. And when we do sin, we need to be drawn back to God, and sometimes that is through someone else showing us our sin and causing us grief for a time. And in those times, we need to set our pride aside, examine ourselves from Scripture, and really see if we are wrong and we are in sin without just, well, mistreating the person who might have brought this to our attention. Human relationships are messy, and they are still messy when we're saved. The biggest difference is that with the Holy Spirit inside of us, reconciliation is actually possible. We can be reconciled to each other and to God. Without the Holy Spirit convicting us and showing us the truth, reconciliation is a lot harder, if not impossible. Secondly, the life of a Christian is not one of sinless perfection, no matter what people might tell you. Just because you are in Christ and you now have the power within you through the Spirit not to sin doesn't mean you will never sin. It doesn't. But the life of a true Christian is one of continual conviction of sin, repentance, and faith as we are sanctified. We are all in different places along our walk with Christ, too. There are some things that truly I think God just hasn't shown to others yet. There are so many things that God does in a new believer that expecting a new believer to be right where I am right away is simply ridiculous. We need to be patient with those younger in the faith with us, still pointing to truth, don't get me wrong, but let God's Spirit do the convicting when we've had to bring attention to someone's sin. Warn them, lovingly point them to truth, And trust that if they are truly God's and this is truly a sin and not just a preference, God will not let them remain in sin forever. He will rebuke them and sanctify them. Finally, ladies, I'm struck by Paul's rejoicing with these believers in their godly sorrow. If you've never been truly broken over your own sin, if your sin is just a matter to you of, oh, gee, well, it's sure nice that Jesus paid that for me then you might take some time in prayer and study to see how we should see our sin and what a big deal it truly is that we have been forgiven. If you've never seen someone else truly broken over their sin, find a sister in Christ who you can develop that kind of a relationship with where you can be safe to share your own sin struggles and be there to bear their sin struggles with them as well. I'm telling you, if you're trying to live this life without the support of the body of Christ, If you aren't truly invested in life with other believers who know you well enough to call you on sin and to encourage you when you are honoring God, you need to find that kind of a relationship because that's what we were meant for, ladies. It's hard and I get that, but oh, it's so worth it. Ask God to help you to find that in your own life and ask him to help you to be willing to take risks to be in that kind of relationship. I'm not talking about codependency here, but honestly, if you don't have anyone that you can text or call and ask them to pray for your heart when you know you are in a situation where you're tempted to sin, you need that. Being able to text a friend and just say, pray for my heart with my children today. I'm struggling to have any grace at all. It's a risky thing, I know, but we all need each other as we make this journey through life together. So today, ladies, how are you doing at being a Paul in the lives of others? Are you ready to walk alongside them in love, not condemning them with an extra measure when they are in sin, but with grace and love and truth pointing them back to Scripture? How are you doing at being the Corinthians? Are you able to take correction and respond in a way that honors God and shows you take that correction seriously? 
Are you able to consider that you might be sinning when someone brings it to your attention, or do you immediately get defensive? What kind of sorrow do you exhibit over your sin? Is your life a pattern of continual, and by continual I mean daily, to be honest, not once or twice a year, continual repentance and gratitude for God's grace in your life? Spend some time with God today and ask Him to help you to see your sin more clearly and to see His sanctifying work in your life, not with guilt, but with delight. Ask Him to continue to sanctify you, to draw you closer to Him, and to create in you a heart that longs for Him in all that you do. Ladies, you'll find the notes for this study under the Bible Studies tab of the website, naomistable.com, day 12, Doing Life in the Body of Christ.